As Bill said, and as you all know, and we have talked about for a few weeks now, Lisa and I will, and Jeanine will be departing for a church. Um, and I just want to say that I have thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed being here. In a very real sense, I don't feel like or believe that we've made just friends. This is family. And so we will be in another location, but there is no way that we can tear the bond between family. And so, as I've said before, I hope to be here at some point in the future to, to come and to visit and to sit and hear the Word of God preached and to fellowship. But I hope to see some of you come from time to time to visit us as well. As I've said before, it's an interesting thing in California. They built freeways that happen to go both directions. Amen. So the road up and down works on both sides of the freeway. It will be our consistent prayer that God would bless this church. That He would continue the ministry here of, of, of Reformed theology on this mountain. And in a very real sense, I want to say that you all will be sending us out. You'll be sending us up. So I'm going to count on, on your prayers for us as we labor in, in that church. They have committed to praying for you all. And so it is my hope that you will continue in prayer for them. Father, as we now turn our attention to the preaching of your word... We pray that you would open our, our hearts and minds to receive those things which you have given to us. They are gifts from you. Your word is never to be taken lightly. It is not to be cast aside or to be treated with indifference, but it is to be internalized, to be listened to, to be believed, and to be acted upon. It is a joy and a blessing to have the extreme privilege of, of hearing the word of God preached. And so I pray that you would be with the hearer and enable him to engage in the conscionable hearing of the Word of God just as you are with the one who preaches that he may preach and guard us all from error. For the sake of Christ, our God and Savior, we ask it. Amen. We come now to a portion of Scripture in the fifth chapter of Ephesians. We'll begin in verse 22. And I would invite you to read along with me, verses 22 through 24. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. What I would like to do first is is talk for a moment about the structure of the passage, and in particular, a word that appears three times in the passage. And it is the simple word, is. The word is. The Greek presentation of the word in our text is the word me, which can also be translated the word I or I am. And in English, it is the present tense verb form of the English to be. Describes something as it exists. 
not what it will be or what is possible or even what it, I might wish or choose something to be, but what's something as it actually exists in reality. We have a saying in English, and you've probably heard it before. It, it goes like this, it is what it is. Right? You've, you've heard that. I used to work in a, in a place where that was a common saying, and it was so common, common, actually wearied of hearing it. It is what it is. The word is has normally described that which is, we might say, a true truth. A true truth. Something is that is true, whether it be an object or a person or an event. The phrase has typically been taken or understood to mean that which is by its nature true in and of itself apart from anything around it. It's intrinsically true. And we might say that the word is could, could apply to objects in a way that we would say this is a Bible. It's, it's not a candlestick, it's, it's not a table, it's not a, a bottle of water, it is a Bible. It simply is what it is by nature. When we look out in the parking lot, we see a car. It simply is a car. Is, therefore, defines objective truth, that which is true by nature. You say, Pastor, why are you laboring on this? Well, you'll see in a moment why I'm belaboring the point, as, as some might say. It was the late Dr. Francis Schaeffer, who some of you may be familiar with, who coined the phrase that I used a moment ago, a true truth. A true truth by definition, according to Dr. Schaeffer, is an inviolable truth that is at its core true in itself, where whether anyone considers it true or not. What I think or choose to believe about something that is a true truth is frankly, therefore, irrelevant it doesn't matter what I choose to think about something if it is a true truth. It simply is. A true truth, therefore, is resistant to any thoughts of men or attempts to make it otherwise. I might, for example, pick up a baseball bat and, and use it to defend my home. Or, or I might, if I'm in desperate need of a, a hammer and can't find one, I might use the baseball bat as a hammer to drive a nail. But being truly a bat, it doesn't change the bat into the hammer based upon my misuse. Amen? So how are we to think of truth? How are we to think of what is? Oz Guinness, reflecting on the ultimate nature of truth and what, and what is, quotes Dr. Schaefer in another place, and he says, ultimately, truth is a matter of theology. Truth is a matter of theology. Not philosophy or, or anything of that nature. Truth is a matter of theology, for Christianity recognizes that Jesus is the truth. He is the embodiment of truth. You want to know truth? You come to Christ. Apart from Christ, there is no truth. And so the word is in our text reflects the nature of what is, the nature of the new creation that if you are in Christ, you are a new creation. You are no longer in darkness, but you are light. You are light. Verse 
10 of Ephesians chapter 2 reads this way, For we, speaking of all Christians, whether you are a child in Christ, a female in Christ, a male in Christ, an old person, a young person, if you are in Christ, you are His workmanship, created, and again, creation has that idea of out of nothing, ex nihilo, that's what creation is. When you hear someone speak of creating something, As a Christian, you smile because you know what the word creation means and you know that no human being can create. Well, they can assemble, they can make something, they can weave something, they can paint, they can draw, they can build. But creation, beloved, listen, creation belongs to God and God alone. Amen? It's His purview. It's only God who can start with nothing and speak. And it is. It simply is. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we we should walk in them. He made them for us. He created us. He created the good works and His purpose is that we should walk in them. That's God's purpose. If we fail as Christians to understand this one foundational truth, that what is, what God has created what God has done, what He has made, and, and what Psalm 100 says, that He has made us and not we ourselves. I love Psalm 100. But it says that God has made us and not we ourselves. It is a very active creation that, that makes something to be what it is. And so in light of what is, I want us to approach the text that speaks to wives There's a part of me that wishes I would be able to continue here for a few more weeks so that I might preach to husbands. Because the reality is, is in our text, it speaks to wives and husbands. Very little here is to the wife. A couple of verses. The remainder of the admonitions, the exhortations that you read in this chapter are to the husbands. Amen? And I dare say that the husband's task is far greater than that of the wife. God simply tells her to do one thing. Submit to your husbands. There are several things that I want to lift out or bring out of our text. And the first one is the standard of obedience. The standard of obedience. Both the wife and the church in our text have as their standard Christ and His Word as well as the manner in which He served and both have the standard of obedience to Christ as, listen, the only definition of obedience. Christ is the only biblical definition of obedience. There isn't another definition of obedience for the Christian. There is to be no other standard to which the wife or the Christian is to look. So whatever God commands, exhorts, or teaches in His Word, listen Christian, whatever God says, that is our standard. It is alone our standard. Wives are not to look to their friends or to look to the magazines or the internet or even at the culture around them for their model. It's not sin to look at those things, but it can become a dangerous thing if it begins to make its impression, its mold upon the mind. And we know this because Scripture tells us, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And if we have the mind of Christ, it is the Word of God that is to transform the mind of a Christian wife and not the world. 
And it is especially not the culture. A Christian wife will not get a godly example of the heart and life of a servant from this culture. But you all know that. Amen. It doesn't take a lot of intelligence. It doesn't take a lot of wisdom to simply turn on the television or open a magazine or look at the internet and want to quickly go do something else. Our example of a godly wife and how she is to live and how she is to live her life before God is not in those things. We have a culture that over the last few decades has openly sought to subvert the marriage and the family, and they say it. They don't just do it, now they say it. They want to get rid of the nuclear family. They want to get rid of marriage as being between a husband and a wife and replace it with something else, anything else. We've simply got to get rid of that. They're they're not hiding it anymore. They're blunt about it. It is a culture that denigrates motherhood and tells women that they are wasting their life if they devote themselves to serving their husbands and to loving and caring for their children in the home. If they make their life about the home and service and love to the family. You see, if if wives truly want to be fulfilled and have any value whatsoever, then they will get a degree and pursue a career and go as far in this life as they possibly can, right? That's where your true fulfillment lies. Why would any woman give up her life for the menial task of loving and serving a husband and raising and caring for her children? Why why would a woman ever want to do that? The world comes to you ladies and it says, "Don't, don't waste your life as a slave to your family, a servant to them. It's demeaning. You must go out and get all that you can out of this world. Right? Well, if not the the culture or her friends, then what is to be the model for the Christian wife? the, The godly Christian wife? It's simple. It is the obedience of Christ. In John chapter 12, listen to... What, what Christ says about His servant. Now, this doesn't just apply to Christian wives. It applies to the Christian period, whether you are male, female, young or old. In verse 25, He says, He who loves his life does what? Loses it. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it to eternal life. Sounds like just the opposite of what the world is telling the Christian wife, isn't it? Love your husbands? Obey a husband? Got to be kidding me. If anyone serves me, Christ says, he must follow me, and where I am, there will there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Second, the order of things. What is the order of things? How do, we, how do we put these things in order so that we might wrap our minds around them? Well, first of all, there, we recognize order all around us, don't we? There's an order in the universe. The earth rotates around the sun. The stars in their place. The planets move as God has commanded them all in order. There's... There's an order on the earth in the laws of nature. The laws of nature act 
in obedience to God, moment by moment. Imagine if you got up tomorrow morning and walked out into the kitchen to make a cup of coffee and all of a sudden gravity decided it was going to disobey God. That'd make making a cup of coffee a little interesting, wouldn't it? As your coffee pot floated off into space. An autoimmune disease, for example, is basically the body turning against itself. Right? It's an autoimmune disease, and they're terrible autoimmune diseases. The body basically attacking itself. And we know that when disorder in the human body occurs, we don't call that ease, but we call it dis-ease. And if you say it quickly, we call it disease. There is a, a form of rebellion going on in the body. And, and we, we expect order in the body. We expect things to work. And when they don't, we make an appointment to go see a doctor rather quickly. And sometimes that disorder in the body brings about severe illness or even death. Disease. There is, there is an authority and submission order in the workplace, in government, in the classroom, in the home, with parents and children. And, and when a child will not obey and submit to that authority, we say of the child that they are what? disobedient, right? When, when you see a child in rebellion to a parent, we, we call that out, even if we don't do it verbally, we, we take notice of it and we say that is a disobedient child. And we know intrinsically it's unacceptable. It just is. We look at the child and we say they are in, in rebellion. And we don't accept that rebellion we correct it. We recognize all of this and, and we intrinsically understand clearly that there is something wrong when authority and submission are violated. In fact, when it occurs in civil life or in the home, we call it outright rebellion. We see it in some of the major cities right now, don't we? Cities and government under attack, police being attacked by rebellious people who will not submit to authority but want to overthrow it. They are deceived into thinking that what they are doing is good when in fact they are godless and rebellion is at the heart of it all. So why is it that in the home sometimes there is such a struggle to establish the understanding of the goodness and the biblical mandate for the order of authority and submission between the husband and the wife. I've heard wives say this out loud, well, I'll obey when he starts acting like the godly man he's supposed to be. Or, I'll obey him when he starts making better decisions. And the list goes on. Perhaps you've heard some of these. I trust that no one here has ever said them. The question of the text to the wife, not my question, this is the question that in inheres in the text is will you be will you live your life as the ungodly wife in response to the ungodliness of your husband when he sins see that is the point that is the answer to the to the question isn't it your husband is for example unregenerate as a christian wife he's not saved or or perhaps he is regenerate and he is is in a time of sin and rebellion toward god which a Christian can slide into for a, a season. How are we to think of this as a Christian wife? Well, I would first offer you this thought. We don't ask perfection of our parents as children in order to have de obedience demanded of us, do we? 
We know law enforcement is not perfect, and yet we obey the law. We certainly know that we live in a government that is not perfect, and yet we as Christians are expected to strive to obey the laws of our government and to obey our governing authorities. Third, the attitude of submission. What is the attitude of submission? How does a wife live out that submission to her own husband? In Philippians 2, that great passage on the attitude of Christ and the submission of Christ to the Father, even unto death for our sins on a cross. If you are a Christian wife and you are looking for a passage to memorize that will help you in your thinking of godly submission in the home, I can think of almost no better passage than this. Verse 3 of Philippians 2 says, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. It helps the Christian mind to serve another, whether it be in the church, in the family, or in the marriage, when the person doing the serving considers the person they are serving as more important than themselves. When there's humility of mind. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Beloved, this begins in the home, does it not? If you want to have a servant's attitude in the church, learn to master it in the home, the most difficult place to have a servant's attitude. Verse 5, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although He existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped or or to, to hold on to, to wrap His hand around and not let go of but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. I can assure you, ladies, that Christ is not asking for a level of obedience in your home that rises to that measure. It might feel like it sometimes. See, the attitude of the Son is that He always did, always, flawlessly, without fail, not His own will, but the will of His Father. His thought was, what is my Father's will? I will do that. You see, the right attitude of a godly wife begins and ends with what you think. What you think. What what are your thoughts of godly submission in the home? What you believe and what you think will affect how you submit to your husband. If you think that submission to your own husband is beneath you, or, or you think it depends upon his worthiness or his level of sanctification, then, dear beloved wife, you have missed it. For that is not the measure of your submission. Christ is the measure of your submission. Well, it is with the foundation of these things, submission to Christ, biblical thinking, that the husband doesn't somehow earn or become the head of the wife any more than Christ earns or becomes the head of the church. I began the message talking about the word is. And I began the message talking about the word is because the husband is the head of the wife. Christ is the head of the church in the same way that 
the husband is the head of the wife. He doesn't become the head of the wife. Christ does not become the head of the church. He's not working toward that. It simply is what is. The difference also is that the Christian has Christ as his or absolute authority in everything. Unquestionably so. He has a delegated authority over the wife, the husband does. He has a stewardship over the wife. The reason I point that out is because the authority over the wife that is a delegated authority is not the same kind of authority that Christ has over the church. Christ has absolute, unwavering, unmitigated authority over His church. We might say the husband's authority over the wife, in a sense, is a stewardship authority. He has a a granted authority, a delegated authority, for which he is accountable, by the way. His headship comes with an accountable responsibility to love and to protect and to care for his wife, as Christ does the church. By the way, I can hazard a guess that you wives, if your husband is doing these things, if he is loving you and caring for you and meeting your needs, and you see him working to do that and to grow in his sanctification, does it not make it a lot easier to submit to a man like that? The wives are, let me think about it. (laughs) You see, headship, the headship of the husband in the home, comes with an accountable responsibility over the wife. The husband has been placed in his role in a position of accountable headship and leadership and, yes, of authority. So what does submission not mean? I think it's important to point that out. It is not an unqualified, unmitigated kind of submission that whatever your husband says, you just have to submit and do it. The submission and and obedience of the wife to her husband is not to be a silent and unqualified obedience to any and everything he says. Men are sinners. I can tell the thoughts of the wives right now. You needed to point that out? (laughs) You see, the standard again is Christ. and, And it is Christ who would never, ever, ladies, ask a Christian to sin. Or to take part in anything that would bring dishonor or hurt to the reputation of another. He would not demand of the Christian wife that she do anything that would bring sin into the home in any way. So it is not an unmitigated blanket submission. If the husband, for example, were to come home and were to say to the wife, Let's go to Walmart. We need to go and steal some things. I feel the need to steal. The wife is to say... No, I will not. It is not an unmitigated blanket submission, therefore. Fourthly, what does this submission look like in the context of the marriage in the home? Our verse 24 says, But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. So I ask my question, what does the submission look like in the marriage context and in the home? Because the verse says, in everything. What we said a moment ago, it's not a blanket submission to any and everything that the husband says. There's a qualification built into the text. The qualification is the first part of the verse, as the church is subject to Christ. So the question for the Christian is, as they read the entire verse, 
Would Christ ever ask of his church to do anything that is in disobedience to the word of God? The answer had always better be no. Amen? Dr. James Boyce, in his commentary, talking about the the level of submission and the character of it in the home, says this. He says, Paul is saying that the wife is to assume a subordinate role in the home. And then there's a period at the end of that statement. The wife is to assume a subordinate role in the home. The husband is not in a place to demand it of her, to command her submission. That comes from Christ. And by the way, that commanding submission that comes from the Word of God is Christ's domain. We as husbands, listen men, we are not to step into His backyard and demand it. Now, I know that in an argument or in a fight, the Christian man knows these verses. We, we know them. And so it's easy for us to throw this at our wife. We ought not sin and do that. Amen? It's Christ's backyard to command this, not ours. This is not a matter of a lack of equality. Submission of the wife to the husband has absolutely nothing to do with equality, does it? Absolutely nothing. Whether male or female, child or parent, servant or master, all are made in God's image and are equally valuable to God. Moreover, the subordination involved, particularly particularly that of the wife, is voluntary. She's to offer her submission. She's to give it in response and in obedience to Christ as an act of worship. And make no mistake, when the wife is obedient to her husband in, in service and in obedience to Christ, she is giving worship to the Lord, is she not? Voice goes on, he says, No woman need accept the proposal of any man. No, no woman is hopefully in our culture at least, forced. I realize there are cultures where this occurs. This is not one of them. No one put a gun to my wife's head and made her marry me. However, if she does voluntarily accept that proposal and enters into matrimony, and if she is a Christian woman desiring to be what God declares she is to be, she thereby accepts the headship of her husband over her and promises submission to him. Did you catch that? The godly submission of a wife in a Christian home, we're not talking about the world, they do what they do. We're talking about those of us who call ourselves by the name of Christ, who submit to the Word of God and say that we know Him, such that when a Christian wife enters into the covenant of marriage, she at that moment has taken on the mantle, if you will, of submission to her husband. So a Christian wife say one time, well, you know, I, I, I need time to grow into this. No, you don't. No, you don't. You need time to repent, maybe. But when you walked that aisle and entered, listen, ladies, when you entered into the covenant of marriage, you took on the mantle of submission when you entered into that covenant. Just as the husband took on the mantle of loving his wife as Christ loved the church. One of the highest commands in all of the scriptures, by the way. We don't get to come back and renegotiate the covenant later. She accepts the headship of her husband over her and promises in that covenant submission to him. We know that there are thousands of women 
millions of women who rail against this. We know this. And there are thousands of men who obviously give them just cause, too. This is true. We know this, men. We give them just cause. But a Christian woman, a godly woman, will nevertheless desire and seek to live up to, not the world's standard, God's standard. God's standard. In Titus chapter 2, and I love this text. And by the way, I I feel the need to give a, a small caveat to this text before I read it. I've heard this come out of the mouths of, quote, female Christian teachers. I'll read it and then I'll give you the comment. Verse 3, Older women likewise are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good so that they may encourage. The word there can also be rendered or train, teach by training. The young women to love their husbands and to love their children. That's the command of Christ to the older woman. They're to be doing this in the church. To be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind. Did I say workers at home? No, I didn't. God said that, right? Workers at home. Being subject to their own husbands. And and I want you to listen to this last part, and then we'll go back to verse 3 for a moment. So that the word of God will not be dishonored. I love how the ESV renders this. So that it will not be reviled. Won't be reviled. When the text says in verse 4 that the older women are to train or to teach the young women to love their husbands, I've heard, I've heard it said, well, the Scriptures command husbands to love their wives, but nowhere do the Scriptures command a wife to love their husbands. How many ladies buy that? You see, if God commands the older women to teach the younger women to love their husbands, in other words, to teach them how to love their husbands, there's inherent in that text a command to love their husbands. You see that. In Colossians 3.18, Paul just says it. Wives, be subject to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. In the Lord. This phrase, as is fitting in the Lord, denotes the fact that to not be in submission is for the wife to have a life that is not fitting in the Lord. It doesn't fit. And all, all you ladies understand this. When you go clothing shopping, for example, you walk up to a dress rack and you, you see a dress that looks good and, and it's in the right section for your size. And so you pull it off and you go to pre-COVID, try it on. You go into the dressing room and you put the dress on. Does it look good? Does it, does it fit? Does it adorn your appearance? Is it, is it a fitting dress? You see, ultimately the Christian wife who does not obey her husband and is therefore not in obedience to Christ is going through her marriage wearing a dress that doesn't fit. She's wearing an outfit that not only doesn't fit, but does not adorn her appearance. She's wearing a dress. Can I be blunt, ladies? That is an ugly dress. How many ladies here would walk out of the house with an absolutely ugly dress on on purpose? One of them's going, 
Not me, not in this lifetime. I would never walk out of the house in an ugly dress, and I assume you ladies wouldn't either. But really, isn't that what, in a way, Paul is saying? Be Wives, be subject to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord, as fits. And if an oversized or an undersized dress that is ugly doesn't fit, ladies, you have to understand, being unsubmissive and in rebellion to your husband, therefore to Christ, surely doesn't fit. You see... When a wife places herself above her husband or she reviles or dishonors him, she brings reproach to herself, to her home, and to the Word of Christ. If you, are, you or I live in a manner that brings dishonor to the Word of God, therefore then we are walking in sin. When the world tells you that if you submit to your husband as is fitting in the Lord and you obey him, that you, that you are being a slave and you're being abused. Perhaps you've heard this language. And I would ask a simple question. When you hear that, do you not hear the hiss of the serpent? You see, in the garden, when Eve stretched forth her hand and took of the fruit and ate, she defied the living God in her heart. She said to the Lord who had, who had said to her, you shall not. She said, oh, but I, but I will. When she said in her heart to, to the God-given authority and protection of God over her, her husband who had given her the very word of God and said, we shall, you, we shall not. She said, oh, but I will. When the wife refuses to hear and to obey the word of God and to submit to her husband, she says to God and to her husband, Oh, but I will. Paul writes, Peter actually writes some instruction to the wife. And I want to actually go to the second portion before I go back and look because he he introduces a phrase here that we see repeated elsewhere in verse 1 of 1 Peter chapter 3. He says, in the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, I want to stop there for a moment and comment on that phrase. If any of them are disobedient to the word, typically that would be taken to mean the unregenerate husband. But ladies, is it possible that in your Christian marriage, your Christian husband has at a moment in time, hopefully a brief one, been disobedient to the word? You can say it. You can do this. That's okay. Your husband, your husband has to listen, not rebuke. They have been. All of us as men have been disobedient to the Word since we came to Christ. And, Lord, not willing, we will be again. Right? If any of them are disobedient to the Word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. You want to win your husband back? He looks over and sees a quiet, submissive, respectful behavior of his wife. You leave him nowhere to stand. You want to cut the legs off your husband when he's disobedient? Ladies, do this. You will shut his mouth. Well, that phrase, in the same way, encapsulates everything that Peter writes from chapter 2, beginning in verse 21 through 24. So let's follow follow with me, if you will, and read along there. 
Verse 21, For you have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in His steps. Christian wife says, Yes, I'm suffering for Christ in my marriage. Who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth, and while being reviled, he did not revile in return. That's hard when you're being reviled, isn't it? When you're in a knockdown, drag out fight with your husband or wife, and I trust none of that ever occurs in any marriage in this church. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return while what? Suffering. He uttered no threats. Boy, isn't that easy to do in a fight, in an argument, in a disagreement. But kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. Verse 1 of 1 Peter chapter 3, in the same way. Say, man, that's a high bar. I, I, I don't, man, I don't know about that. You're right. Apart from Christ, you cannot any more than the husband can love you as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for it apart from Christ. See, we know that a believing wife who has a regenerate husband has an eternal advantage. Wives, listen to me for a moment. I have known Christian women who found themselves through whatever circumstances in this life married to an unregenerate man. And I can tell you, Christian wife, if you have a regenerate husband, thank God. Thank God. Husbands, if you have a regenerate wife, thank God. You've got 90% of the battle won already. You're just doing cleanup now. Amen? Because if you don't have a regenerate spouse, what do you appeal to them with? Empty words? The, ph- the philosophies of this world? That'll get you far, won't it? If you have a regenerate spouse, God has blessed you. He's been good to you. Yes, there are going to be struggles and different levels of sanctification and maturity. My wife is far godlier than I am. Just ask her. Pray for her, by the way. But you know what I'm saying here. If you have a regenerate spouse, God has blessed you. Thank Him. Don't pray in precatory prayers over your spouse because they're not what you want them to be. Give thanks to God instead. John Calvin. I love what Calvin says on this this is, this is just so good. If a Christian wife with an unbelieving husband is commanded by God to submit to that unbelieving husband, how much more the wife who has a believing husband? You ever thought about that? But if wives ought to obey ungodly husbands, with much more promptness ought they to obey who have believing husbands. Don't shoot at me, ladies. It was John Calvin, and by the way, he's dead. But he's also right. Christ suffered far greater humility during his life and at the cross than any Christian wife will ever be asked to suffer in a marriage. Well, Peter goes on, he says in verse 2, As they observe your chaste and respectful behavior, your adornment, this goes to the how, must not be merely external. It's not the outside of the person. 
I've known very plain women, plainly dressed, not very attractive, but absolutely beautiful on the inside. You've known ladies like this, right, in your life. And, and you are, you're drawn to them because that beauty just it pours out of them in their godly, quiet, submissive spirit. And their voices are, are sweet to listen to because they encapsulate the presence of Christ. I've known women like that. I've known men like that. Quiet in spirit and godly. He says, don't let it be external, braiding your hair, wearing gold jewelry, putting on beautiful, expensive dresses. But let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. Precious in the sight of God. And I love those words because if something is precious to God, how, how much should it be precious to us? If something matters to God, Christian, it ought to matter to you. For in this way, in former times, the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, being submissive to their own husbands. Now, notice, if you will, how Peter connects the phrase holy women also. Holy women also. Who hoped in God. He connects that phrase to the attitude and behavior of the heart in the adorning of submission. That, that's so good, isn't it? Verse 6, Just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you have become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. Don't be afraid of submitting to your husband. God's got you covered. And he goes on in verse 7, You husbands in the same way live with your wives in an understanding way as with someone weaker since she is a woman, and show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life so that your prayers will not be hindered. You see, that's important, and I don't want to leave it out. Husband, God's not answering your prayers. You might want to look over and see how you're treating your wife. But for a moment, I want to go back to this example of submission that, that is used in the text. It says, Just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, there is a natural revulsion in the mind of a woman when she reads that text. Let's be honest. Sarah obeyed Abraham, even calling him kurios in, in, in the Greek. She called him Lord. And we as Christians, we read that phrase and we, we say to ourselves, well, that was just the culture back then. That's weird. Right? That's weird. Man... The Christian woman thinks to herself, I'm, I'm glad we don't live in some backwards, antiquated, third world culture where a woman would even think about the absolutely denigrating act of calling her husband Lord. My husband had better not even think about me calling him Lord. Now, the wife thinks to herself, I, I might call him to take out the garbage or to stop at the grocery store on the way home, but never Lord. You've got to be kidding me. And, and, and Abraham... You want to talk about Abraham? Christian wife says to herself, he was a patriarch through whom the promise came of the Messiah and his, his name is in the faith hall of fame and God made the covenant with him to make him the father of the nations. And my husband, I can tell you one thing, he's no Abraham. Right? Call him Lord? Gotta be kidding me. 
I'm not saying that a wife must call her husband Lord. That I don't think that's the point of what Peter's saying. But what this teaches, let me be clear on this, what this teaches is that the level of submission, godly submission, that is defined by God, and in Peter's example that is inscripturated for us, not, not our own definition or even a redefinition of submission, is that she obeyed him to the point that she called him Lord. And that's Peter's example inscripturated for us. So we don't get to laugh it off or dismiss it as culture. We have to stop and give it serious consideration. See, we're happy to go to Ephesians 5 and look at the husband and say, look at the high level of submission to Christ in loving his wife, Right? And if he's disobedient to that, he's in sin, but we turn around to the first part of the text and we say, well, we need to bring down that level of submission for the wife. Beloved, don't believe that. That's the hiss of the serpent that will destroy your home and your marriage. It will. I know that some Christian wives read this and and fear sets in and they think, Well, if I obey God and submit to my husband in the way that Scripture teaches, I'm afraid my husband won't fill in the blank, right? He he won't do his part. He won't love me the way he's supposed to. He won't... On and on and on. I'm afraid to, to submit to God in the way that God tells me as a Christian and a godly wife to submit to my husband. I know this. I've heard this audibly from Christian wives. And there is a sense in which we have to stop at Christian men and say, shame on us, that it would get to that point that a Christian wife would not enjoy godly submission to her husband. We are to therefore create an environment in the home that rejects that kind of fear in the wife. And sixthly, let's begin to bring this message to a close. Submission, we mentioned this earlier, submission is an act of worship. Godly submission in the home is an act of worship of the wife to her Lord. See, when when the Christian wife fills her mind with the Spirit of God through the Word of God, then, then she is an act of submissive obedience to her husband in a godly, quiet, and reverent way. God blesses that and receives that act of worship from her. It is the Lord's will, therefore, that the wife be submissive to her husband. And if she wants to honor Christ, then one of the concrete ways that she does this is by being in submission. Being in submission to her husband. Not an occasional submission. Not, oh yeah, that's right, I have to submit to him. But living a lifestyle of godly submission. If a wife is contentious and refuses to follow the leadership and authority of her husband, she is frankly in rebellion. But the frightening thought, dear Christian wife, is that she is not so much in rebellion to her husband as that she is in rebellion to the Lord Christ Himself. She says, I will not. The wife says, what if I disagree with something he says or does? What, what should I do if I think he is wrong? And I'm convinced he is wrong or perhaps in sin. Well, first off, l- listen carefully, dear wife. And I mean this in the most gracious way that I can say it. You are not the Holy Spirit. Amen? 
No more than the husband is the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is far more than capable, far more than capable than you are of dealing with your husband. And if you are a godly, submissive wife, your husband, if he is in sin or being disobedient, had better be afraid. Because your godly submissiveness to your husband in obedience to Christ is a stepping out of the way so that God will deal with him. Husband sees a wife in godly submission when he is in error and sin. In a sense, had kind of probably better be somewhat afraid. If he is in sin or is making a rash or foolish decision and you and his, as his wife are exercising a gentle and humble attitude, and by the way, not, not speaking to him with a harsh or argumentative or demanding tone, but instead you are offering loving guidance to him as you should do from the Word of God. That, that's your responsibility to your marriage to, and to Christ. You have a responsibility before God to do that. It is not love to sit and quietly watch as your husband drives the bus off the cliff. Right? That's not being a godly wife. Oh, I'm being quiet and submissive while my husband destroys our home. No. In fact, not only is that not being a godly wife, that's being a victim. Which God does not call you to be a victim in your marriage. Instead, the wife must put on that godly spirit. She must, and by the way, she must not put God on her timetable. Well, God's just not moving fast enough. I've been at this godly submission thing for six months now, and my husband hasn't changed. Well, continue. Well, how long should I submit to my husband until you're not breathing? Or he's not breathing? You see, to fight with him, or to yell at him or to get into screaming matches where you argue him down until you get your way or make him th- see things your way. When a wife does those things, the question we have to ask or she must ask, is that from God or from her? Well, lastly, the believing wife, point number seven, the believing wife has a responsibility before God to submit to her husband because she sets the example for other wives in the church. The godly wife, the Christian woman, has a responsibility before God to submit to her husband because she sets the example for other wives. I was in a church many years ago and there were several marriages, there were quite a number of them, where the husband submitted to the wife. And it wasn't something you had to work to figure out, it was evident, it was public. And she would say no to something. It was no. There was, I was in a monthly men's study many, many years ago, probably almost three decades ago now, where we had come together to study the Word of God and biblical and reformed theology. And we were, we were digging into the doctrines of grace and really trying to understand some things. It was, it was a, a wonderful time of in-depth doctrinal study as we as men gathered and, 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 and the purpose was to know God. And one man who was a part of the study desperately wanted to come and be a part of it. But as we 
entered into the fifth and sixth months of our study and his wife began to hear what we were studying, that we were studying this evil thing called Calvinism and Reformed theology, she said to her husband, I, I don't want you going anymore. You cannot go. And that was the end of it. He didn't come back anymore. Let me say it differently. If the church desperately needs anything today, among the things that it desperately needs is the example of the godly, submissive wife to her husband because she shines forth the light of Christ when she does this. Rebellion in the home cannot help but spill over into the church. You see, if you and I have a rebellious attitude toward God, or God-ordained authority, God-given authority, how can it not affect our attitude toward the church, the authority of the elders, and toward Christ? If a wife will not even submit to and obey her husband whom she sees, whom she can touch, how then will she obey the Lord whom she has not seen? Amen.